Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Austin Gill. Hey, 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 from San Diego. And Steve Edwards. Hello from cloudy and rainy Portland. So upsetting. It was nice and sunny earlier. I know, man. Past few days have been great. We were doing picnics with our family in in the backyard since we're all at home. Easier to get dinner ready. It's really upsetting now. Whenever I'm stuck on what to learn next, a lot of times I just go back to the fundamentals and think about how I can make those things more automatic. The reason is, is because then when I focus on the fundamentals, I'm able to actually level up in all the other areas that I'm trying to learn. So I teamed up with Kyle Simpson to focus on the fundamentals of JavaScript. Kyle wrote the books, You Don't Know JS Yet, and his Getting Started ebook goes over just the fundamental fundamentals, so to speak, of JavaScript. And we're putting together a 30-day challenge where you can actually level up on this stuff, get it down pat, and then you can go and learn all of the other things that you're doing that are based on these things. So if you go sign up for the challenge, you can do it at devchat.tv slash bookcamp. That was Kyle's idea. You can get the following as part of the challenge. You get daily training videos, which are worth about 150 bucks. You get daily exercises and homework, which again, are about worth about 97 bucks, especially with the coaching that we give you around them. You get access to the private Slack channel, which is worth about 20 bucks. You get access to a premium podcast series that Kyle and I are going to record. It's an eight part podcast series where we talk through all the pieces of the book. You'll get three Q&A calls per week, and that puts you at about a $1,779 value. And what's great is you also get then the audio from the podcast, you get the video from the training, you get the experience from working, and you get the visual reading learning from the book. So you're going to learn this in multiple ways. Once again, go sign up at devchat.tv slash bookcamp, devchat.tv slash bookcamp, and you can get it for $197. If you use the code JSJabber, you can get it for $147 instead. So go check it out right now, devchat.tv slash bookcamp. Well, welcome. Today's panelist episode. And so today, we as your panel are going to be talking about some of the uh, tips and tricks that we have with Vue development. Some of the things that we have found are really nice when you're working with Vue, whether it's directly during development, something in production, just some things that help with your applications. So to kick it off, Austin, would you like to start? Yeah, there is one thing that I wanted to share about using SAS. So I use SAS for my styling. And one thing that I've always sort of liked or had trouble with was, you know, I'll have like global SAS things like variables or mixins or functions that I want to make available to every one of my view components. And you can import those within a view component using SAS's at import and then pointing to the location of the mix-in or the variables file or whatever. But generally, I, I want to avoid that and just have it available automatically across every component. And you can do that with the view CLI 3 and a little bit of uh, Webpack configuration. So if you have a project that's built with the... I mean, you can do it with the CLI version 2 as well, but I'll just focus on the CLI version 3. So if you have a project that you have built with the CLI, you may be familiar with the view.config.js file. And if you want to make a shared sort of SAS file, you can put that maybe somewhere inside of your assets folder or somewhere inside of your source folder. And then inside of view.config.js, you can add a property for CSS 
And inside of that object, you can add another property for loader options. And that inside of that object, you can add a property for SAS. Inside of that, <laughs> lastly, you can add a property for data and assign that to the string for the shared SAS file. Uh, you can import like any number of SAS files this way. So you can have your mixins or your variables or your functions. Uh, I like to have one file called shared. And then from there, import my mixins and variables and things like that. And then I'll just provide that local or globally here. I'll have a, we'll have a link in the show notes to blog posts I wrote. So you can see this a little bit makes more sense there. But one thing that's really important to know is that this is for things like variables and mixins is fine. You don't want to have any actual CSS rules in this shared file because this file is going to be imported to every single component. And so if you have CSS rules, that will also be imported to every single component and that could cause some bloat to your final bundle size. So essentially you're bringing in one CSS, one SAS file that has all of your variables and everything imported to it. And then that's just applied to all of your components. Is that right? Yeah. So generally how I'll, how I'll uh, set this up is like, I will have a main CSS or a main SAS file and then I'll have a shared SAS file. And my project will import the main SAS file, which has you know all my shared things, like the variables and mixins and stuff, and then all my styles as well. But then in the web or in the view config file, I'll import just the shared or like global SAS stuff. And that would only provide the any sort of variables or mixins or things like that. And then that would be available in, in every single view component. That's awesome. One of the the things in my current project at work it, that's always frustrating is remembering whether or not you imported the variable file or uh, something like that. So definitely bring that one with me. Yeah, I think if you're not working with SAS, this might not make a whole lot of sense. But if you're working with SAS and you've ever had to like import your variables into like five different files, it gets really old really fast. So this is really nice. Definitely. Yeah. Sounds cool. very sassy. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> So one of the one of the tips that I have is when when I was starting out with you, I was always curious about how you could do this dot dollar sign store or this dot dollar sign refs or this dot dollar sign whatever. When I started, there was still the HTTP library that was recommended. So there was this dot dollar sign HTTP, and I learned eventually that you could add your own variables to the view prototype. And it's really as simple as that. When you're in your main JS file, you can add something to view.prototype.whatever, the convention being dollar sign, whatever variable name you want. And then you can just apply it in there. In discussing this with the panel, it, you know, we discussed how it's not really considered a best practice all of the time. But one of the things that we use it for in my current role is storing our constant variables. So we'll have a, a number of strings that we're using as constants that need to be used throughout the application, it's a lot easier for us to just store that on the view prototype at view.prototype.constant than to import a constant file into all of our different view components. Just keeps it in that one single place uh, that's controlling everything. Another, another example of how you could use that is if you wanted to put your console log on that. So view.prototype.log, for example, you could pass all of your console logs through that. And then once you go from development to production, you could have that code just turn off. So you could have a, a check in there that says, if I'm in production, don't run the console log. 
And that way you're able to control things going out to the console a lot easier than hunting through all of your code or having a linting rule that says remove all of the console logs everywhere. Yeah, I like to do that one as well because like sometimes you're you're within the template of a view component and you're, you know, listening to some event on a custom component and you just want it to like log out whatever the event value is. That's really nice. Yeah. Especially since console log doesn't work in the template, this is a an easy workaround for that, right? Yeah, exactly. I imagine there's some other things like, I don't know, maybe access to the window, but or to the walls. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I know I've also occasionally stuck Axios on there. So view.prototype.axios, kind of hearkening back to when $.http was a thing. But I, I know that's not necessarily recommended. It just made it easy in at least one project to have that custom Axios instance on the view instance itself. So I didn't have to import that file everywhere. Yeah, I think that's a pretty common pattern. Well, I'm glad I'm not alone. Steve, do you have a tip or trick you would like to share? Why, yes. Thank you for asking. I do. <laughs> so this is a trick that I ran into recently where I'm working on a uh, starter kit app for a platform. And one of the things, the end goals of the platform that I is to be able to allow users to basically just easily create a, a directory structure that has uh, everything they need for a, a particular resource is the term that's being used in this particular case, and not have to go manually add things like routes and store modules uh, in index files, like the store index file or the router index file. Just take a step back uh, and give a little description. Generally, when it comes to organizing files and different components of an application, there are two dominant ways of thinking. One is to order by feature and one is to order by functionality. So in, the, in this particular example, let's say that for a given resource, it requires a view component, so a .view file, the routes for route or routes for the given resource, and then any Vuex store functionality, so a store module that needs to be imported in. You could organize them either A, by functionality, where you put all your components in one directory, all your router files in another directory, and all of your store files in yet another directory, or you could organize by feature. So for every resource, a directory would have a view file, a router file, and a store file. So in my case, I wanted to go by feature. And the idea is down the road to create a view CLI plugin that the user can run that says, okay, give me a new resource, here's the name, and then we create the directory with everything in it. That's the backstory of what I'm trying to do. So the idea then is, uh, and I wrote a blog post on this, and I'll put a link in there to this blog post, is I wanted to create the router file. Let's say I have three resources called uh, user, event, and job. So under my resources directory, I have an event directory, a user directory, and a job directory. Within each of those, I'll have a store.js file, which does an export default containing that imports the related component because that has to be referred to in the route path definition. And then defaults an object that contains your standard view router objects. You know, it contains your path, name, the component, just the basic stuff. So then the magic happens in the 
router index file. It happens with a, I believe it's a Node.js function called uh, route, what was it? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot this. Context, uh, context using require.context as your method. So when you, uh, there are three different, there are two, th- there are multiple parameters. The first one is basically just where do you want to look? What directory do you want to look in to load all your context modules? Uh, a second one is tell you whether you want to recurse into lower directories. And then the third one is a regular expression that identifies the files that you want to look for. So I initially found this when working with the IHTNN module where you could look for your different JSON files that had all your translations. In this case, I just make my regex to be routes.js. So every I'm assuming every resource directory has a routes.js file. And then there's a little you loop through the keys method that's provided by the context module. And with a couple map lines, it gives you everything you need. And then uh, once you have those, then you can push those, create a routes object, and then create your new router with your routes object, and you're good to go. So it's, again, it's hard to imagine this with me describing it, but the blog post has the code samples. And once you see it, it makes a lot more sense. And then after I had written that, I found out I tweaked this slightly to do the same for my stores files. So I can go through, read, look for store.js in every directory, use require context to get everything I need, and then pass it to my view router definition. That way, I'm not having to manually enter into my store or router index files every new component, every new resource that I need. Yeah, that's super cool. I think I read a, a blog post about that. It may have been yours, but about the, the router stuff and building up a dynamic router. I've never implemented it, but it sounds like a much more scalable approach. Yeah, I'd like to think I'm the first one to come up with this, but I have no doubt that I'm not. I'm sure others have. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, I think that there would I, I I think there would be probably something you'd have to be cautious about because as I, as far as I understand, view router, it does matter what order the routes come in in view router, right? And if you have things in a folder, then they're ordered by alphabetical. Yeah, I'm so, sure the regex returns alphabetical, I believe. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, so mean, interesting, I think, yeah, if you have like a, a 404 before your about route, for example, then if you go to about... I think because the four would come before the A and about, then you might have like a 404 component or route handler taking all of your other routes. Yeah, I mean, and granted, there's something like this is going to be a little brittle simply because you're assuming specific locations and file namings. But I mean, that's par for the course anyway. I mean, you there's views. Yeah. You know, you have to have things in certain locations, you know, Nuxt, everything's in pages, you know, direct, so on and so forth. But part of what I'm trying to mitigate or using to mitigate that will be the CLI plugin that automatically generates everything for the user. So, you know, at least an initial creation, it's being done as expected. And then if they break it, then it's on them. Yeah, yeah. No, I think if if what I was saying is an issue, it certainly on a large enough application, the benefit of having it automatically generated is probably greater than the the cost of just having to be a little bit aware of what could go wrong. Right. So I'm, I'm curious, would this also work if you want, if you had like a user's 
feature. And then you would have the users page that you could make a template that just lists all the users. And then you could have a specific user page for one given user and all of their specific details. Yeah, you could probably, yeah, because in your route definition, you could divide it, you know, have a child route that would be, you know, here's your users list and then you define your child route and you can use your dynamic, you know, your standard dynamic route parameters to fill in the information for the specific user. So I haven't done that yet, but I, I've thought about that. I don't see why you couldn't. Maybe there's reasons you can't, but I don't see why that wouldn't work. It's kind of like getting, yeah, Nuxt or Gridsome benefits, but in a single view, single page application. Correct. Yeah. I think That's there is great. a plugin for that, actually. Uh, Steve, there could be. Quick. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm going to have to work on trademarking what I did. So. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, if we are ready to move on, I got something else to talk about. Go for it. Okay. So, Steve, you mentioned the, the require.context, which is interesting because I've never used that for my module, my, my store modules or my router, but I do use that for registering global components. So for those that are, are not familiar, Vue has a way to register custom components by using the Vue library and the component method. So it's Vue.component. And then you give it a string name that would represent how you would implement the component mm-hmm. in a template tag. And then you pass it the component definition or like the object definition. Generally, I think you you don't necessarily want all of your components to always be like globally accessible. But there's some things like maybe like a button or an input or or things that you use frequently enough that you do want to have available everywhere in your application. And so the way that I generally approach this is inside of my source folder, generally have a components folder that has all of my components. And then inside of that components folder, I'll create a global folder. And any component that ends up in the global folder, I want to automatically register and make available to the entire application. Kind of similar to you with the router, in my main.js file, I will use the require.context feature of Webpack to point to that components folder. And that pulls out every file within that context. And then I just loop over each one and I get the file name. And from the file name, I can basically derive a component name. And then I, I use inside of that loop, I use a view.component to pass in the file name and then import that uh, component file definition. And so that registers it globally all within like, I don't know, five or six lines of code. So Austin, question for you. One of the things I ran into with my store implementation was look because I had a common file name in every directory for each different resource, I couldn't find a way from the what was returned from the context module to determine the name of my store. And so what I had to do was to add a name item to the returned object from each store file so that I could tell, okay, this is the name of the store because that's what you have to have that to pass to the, the Vuex definition. So is there a way to, to do that where you can get like the parent directory name or something like that in the context module? I don't know because my global components folder is just a flat folder where every component in like every global component is just at that level. I would imagine that there's a way to do a nested structure because after all, like you said, the the second parameter in the required.context is 
whether it should be deep, right? Something Correct. like that. Like how yes. it should look. Whether it should um, recurse. Right. So yeah, I, I haven't I haven't gone that far. I just have that component slash global and then I don't do it recursive and then I have a regex that just looks for any file that ends with dot view. So can't say. <laughs> uh, okay. Well I'll keep on maybe I'll find something. Yeah. Sorry. And then like this pattern is really cool. Like we we kind of talked about it for now router routes, Vuex modules, components. You can also extend it for things like custom directives, view supports. So you could have a directives folder that has a bunch of files for directives and you can do this require.context and loop over each file in that folder and then automatically register that global directive with, uh, what is it, view.directive. And then I also like to do this with filters as well, except I do it a little bit differently with filters because... Well, I guess it's it's sort of similar, but filters I generally don't have quite so many. So I usually just have a filters file and then I export a different function for that filters from that filters file. And the reason why I treat filters a little bit differently is because generally filters, well, components and directives are very, very view specific features, but directives or filters are a little bit different. Filters are basically just a function that you might pass, like usually accepts a string, you use it inside your template, usually it accepts a string, and then it can run some sort of function on it and return that to the template. And the reason why I say this is a little bit different is because that that functionality can be useful in many, many different places, not just inside of the, the view uh, template as a filter. Usually I'll have like a, a utilities file or folder where I have a bunch of functions that I might need for various reasons. And some of those are going to be like string manipulation. And string a string manipulation function is essentially the same as a filter. It just has to follow a certain format. For example, every filter in view is a function that accepts a string and then returns most likely a string. But you can pass it, you can give it different parameters as well, as long as the first parameter is always a string. Then it can be any function that takes a string first and then whatever other parameters after. So for example, I'll have a filter that's like capitalized, that takes a string and returns the first letter of the string capitalized plus the rest of the string. I'll have one that I'll have a filter called number. I'll have a filter for plural, truncate. Truncate, for example, is useful in many places besides just inside of a view template. So I like to treat these a little bit different because those are, if I can write these functions to be utilized across different environments, then... Um, it's not so view specific and I can actually import these functions into the various different places that I need them. So I haven't used filters before, but this looks essentially like something you would see in a pure functional language like Elm. It's just, it takes an input, it gives an output. You just do some stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it should be pure because yeah, you're definitely not going to have access to say, for example, a view instance or be able to modify like state. It just, yeah, it takes us takes a string input and returns an output. Okay. Actually, I mean, technically, it, it, it could be a function that doesn't even take a string input. Like, you could just have a function that returns the same thing no matter what, but that, I don't know how helpful that would be. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Hey, folks, do you love keeping track of what's going on in the Vue community? Maybe you're a little overwhelmed with all the new stuff. Well, don't be. Come join us at Vue Remote Comp. 
The Remote Conf is going to be a three-day online conference. We're actually going to have a fourth day, the day before, where we watch our favorite videos from View conferences over the last year. We'll also have talks from our favorite guests from around the View community, as well as our panelists from the Views on View podcast. So if you're out there looking for great View content that'll help you stay current with your web development skills, then come check us out at viewremoteconf.com. That's viewremoteconf.com. Before we move on too far from the global component registration, I know you said this is probably not something you should do to register everything. And I know the View docs say don't register everything. Do you know why they say that? Is it because of bloat? to make your application too big? what What's the reason for not importing everything? Uh, probably bloat. I mean, general, I mean, if you're importing something globally, it's going to be available everywhere, you know, whether or not you right. need it. So I would think that global registration would, you'd only want to do that for something that you need, you know, in every component that, or the component you're going to write, you don't want to have to deal with importing it individually in each one. You know, maybe it's some sort of alerting component or, you know, maybe it's a pure functional type of thing where you export a display that says, you idiot, you screwed up, you know, every time you throw an error or something <laughs> like that. You know, who knows? But that's that's my understanding of, of the global registration and when you would or wouldn't want to use it. Yeah, I haven't looked at the source code or anything about this, so I could be wrong, but I imagine that Vue uses a prototype to create each different component. And if you modify the global prototype, then you're probably modifying every component as well. So whatever you whatever you register on the base prototype component is going to be implemented in every future component or every every like child or ancestor component. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I just wanted to make sure uh, it was clear for anyone listening. Uh, because I know, especially somebody coming from React, where they can just import a file and suddenly they can use that component. It's it's a little confusing sometimes in Vue to have to register a component. I want to make sure we were explaining why global registration is not something you should default to. Cool. Thank you. Mm, yeah, I think bloat. Yeah. Hey, Steve, would you be able to tell us a bit about the plugins folder? Yeah, this is just sort of a, a core organizational tip when it comes to organizing the myriad of files that that you can will end up generating as part of any view app or Nuxt app or you know any app as, as you get larger and larger. So the two uh, particular examples that come to mind that I've used this with is like Beautify or IETNN, where basically you need to import whatever this is and then do a view, what is it, a view use of that and there's certain things you need to define for that, instead of doing it all in your main JS file, which could get really unwieldy, what you can do is create a, say, a plugins folder, and then in there have a, a, a Beautify JS or an IATN JS that handles all your definitions, and maybe it's importing. Like with Beautify, you can import all the specific, you know, pieces of Beautify instead of having to import the whole application, whether it's checkboxes or you know modals or whatever. The idea is that in you basically just create the plugins folder, create your JS file that has everything you need, and then you can import from your plugins. Yeah, import the plugins from that folder as you need them. So it keeps your, your main file clean and mean as you need it. Yeah, that's a really nice way to keep things from like getting, I don't know, when you have like five or six or seven plugins that you're using, and that main JS file can get pretty gnarly. So, Steve. I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I notice. I notice that you keep using the term i18n. Everybody knows what that means, don't they? Maybe, maybe not. I'm that's, kidding. That's the latest sport drink, right? 
It's like yeah, a yeah, or something. It. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, good point. Thank you. ITNN has to do with basically internet the terms the two terms that I always think of are either internationalization or localization. And what that means is being able to provide the text that is displayed in your application in various languages. So being able to switch uh, between English versus Spanish versus French versus German versus Japanese versus any of the other hundreds of languages that are out there. For example, when I was working in a large Drupal app uh, a couple of years ago, we had to deal with 57 different localizations or locales. And so we had a lot of translation <laughs> that went into that particular application. So there are very in view. There's various different ways you can change this. I've seen examples where you maybe create buttons, you know, that when you click on it, it automatically changes everything, all your strings right there. Another way to do it is just to set a default value that is tied to the language for the particular browser that's being used, and you can use the navigator element in the browser API to do that. So there's various different ways to do it, but. The gist is that IETN refers to translating strings to an appropriate language for the user. Yeah. Now, do you know why it's called IETN? Isn't it short for inter- a way to say internationalization? That's my closest yeah. guess. I've never really looked it into is. where that comes from. So the reason why is because it's the letter I and the letter N for internationalization, and then there's 18 letters in between. So it's I, 18 ah. letters, The same for accessibility is A11Y. I can guess where that would come from, too. Okay. (laughs) Uh, That's tricky. I like that. Pretty cool, huh? I always thought that A11Y was just because it was an ally, and it was cleverly written to... I I thought it was cleverly written to to trip people up who could easily read it and be like, oh, wait a minute, I need to think about this. Yeah, me too. But then like, my whole theory fell apart when I learned about internationalization. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, I like that. That's cool. Yeah. To piggyback on what Steve was saying real quick, breaking up your, your imports like view.use into its own thing is something that I use at my work as well because we use Storybook for some of our components, but we also need to bring in our globally available components. So we were able to break the, the config out into its own uh, plugins folder, essentially. And then we can start that custom view instance inside of Storybook with all of our configuration that we needed. So it's, it helps to, to break apart pieces like that. And I really like uh, that idea of using the plugins folder. So thank you, Steve. Anytime. Austin, you were going to say something. So I got another tip. So yeah, I mean, like a lot of applications that I've worked on use some sort of global state management, like Vuex or... Most more recently, I've been using view.observable for my store, which is awesome. I like it a lot. And sometimes, you know, I, I need to make like some sort of HT, uh, some sort of API request, and I want to get the response from the API request to like pre-populate my store before my app loads. Because if you don't, then you know you might have that experience where your application loads and it's like, oh, there's there's no user. And then it makes that request and comes back, and then the the screen suddenly changes, and then there's a user, right? Because the user was like logged in from a previous session or something like that, right? So maybe I want to go and like make that request before the application loads, so that the user doesn't see that weird flash of like not logged in and then logged in. So one way you can do that, and there are caveats to this that I'll talk through, but one way you can do that is let's say you have your 
like some way to write data to your store. Maybe that's a mutation or an action or something. Uh, you can actually in- import your store into like your main.js file, which is where you would bootstrap your application. And you can, before you, you run the you know, view mount uh, method to actually mount it, you can make that HTTP request to go and get the user. And then when that request comes back, maybe, you know, probably it's like a promise. So you can wait for that promise to resolve. And then when that promise resolves, you can either commit that data to the store or, you know, invoke the action or whatever, but basically write the data to the store and then mount your view application. So this is really useful if you want to avoid that sort of that sort of flash of not logged in versus logged in or or you know whatever work you want to do before before mounting your app and you want to preload your your store there are the caveats that i was mentioning is like if i'm if i'm waiting on this request to come back before mounting my application then the user basically just sees a white screen so it's kind of a weird experience on a slower connection that the you know, when a user lands on a page, I will actually get the HTML that I need for that page, and it'll be there, but it'll just be a blank white page while that request is going out. And then when it comes back, it'll populate the store, and then it'll mount the view application on that HTML that came back, and then um, the user will see it. So just a small caveat, there's also the chance that that request will fail, in which case you want to, you know, maybe mount like a view app with a failed state, but that was that's just something that you know I do. I don't think I've seen a lot of people do, and it, it's kind of nice for like critical information. Yeah, I like that. It's I can think of many cases where I want to just there's stuff I always want in my store, always regardless of you know just basic stuff for an application, and I usually have to trigger it from a component. So nice to know ways you can get around that. Yeah, I mean, another alternative is you could have that, you could have your component or you could have your application mount and just have like a loading state until the critical resources have been downloaded and then placed into the store or loaded into the store. It's, I mean, under the hood, you're basically doing the same thing. You're waiting for a request to come back before showing the application. With the loading state, it's probably a friendlier UI for people on a slower connection because they're not waiting for like a blank white page. That's cool though, because I don't normally think of firing off any JavaScript before the view application opens. I'm always at the very earliest, I'm looking in the app, the app.view mounted function to start doing something like that. It's a, it's an interesting take to do it before even that happens. So I like that. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's how I've done it in the past as well inside of app.view. And then I kind of realized that because we're just in JavaScript in the main JS file, I could basically at the bottom just have a fetch. Or heck, you could even have it at the top before you define your view stuff. And I don't know, kind of, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but you, you know, at the bottom, I'll have like a fetch that just says, hey, go and fetch this like configuration or go and fetch the user if, you know, if the cookie is there or like some local storage thing is there, go and fetch the user. And then when that comes back, then, you know, finish mounting the app. Yeah, that's really cool. So I have another tip as well. One of the things that's very important once you have developed your application and implemented it as you're wanting is tracking bugs and errors as it comes in. 
And in the past, I have used tools like Sentry.io to track any of my client-side bugs, and that works pretty well. But Vue has its own method to handle the errors that then also plugs into things like Sentry or Bugsnag or what have you, or you could write your own custom. And that is in handler. And if you want to learn about that, that's on the API page. Uh, but essentially, it passes in the error, some info. The info is a view-specific error information snippet, like which lifecycle hook it uh, takes place in. And then you can just handle that error however you want. You could send it to your own custom error handling on your server. You could send it to a serverless function. You could send it to Sentry. And it's just really cool that Vue gives you that uh, easy functionality so you don't have to try and listen to console.error or try to catch whatever is happening inside of your view application manually. It's just provided right there for you. Crickets. Crickets. I know. I know. Everyone is stunned by how good that is. I'm trying to think how I come back. Yeah, mind blown. Excellent, dude. Or, you know. (laughs) No, that's really cool. The first time I learned about that error handling thing, there's like a, there's a few different ways to handle errors in Vue. And that's like one of the really nice ways that's just like on a global level. Something that's really cool, it's built in actually. Yeah. And then with something like that, you could also determine if you're in development, just log it out to the console because you're right there. And if you're in production, go do something else with it, send it to Sentry or whatever. So it yeah. gives you a lot of extra flexibility as well. Cool. Sweet tip. Thanks. All right. I got one last tip and then I'm all done. Okay. <laughs> so I wrote this, I wrote a blog post up on this that we can share the link in the show notes. It was someone asking a question about. So they had a form, like maybe like a really long form, and they wanted a way to prevent a user from like either reloading the page or going to a different route or something while that form had any edits. Or, you know, basically like maybe like double check with the user to make sure that they, they actually want to leave. You've probably seen this on some applica- on some like websites or applications that when you're in the middle of filling something out and like you go to close the page accidentally, it's like, whoa, 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 you sure you want to leave? You're like, yeah, I changed my mind. Something like that. So with you, kind of like a way you can approach this is so there is the if you want to if you want to stop the user from closing the page or well you can't stop them from closing the page. But if you want to like double check with them before they close a page or reload a page, you can listen to the before unload event on the window. And so you can say like you know, either in the mounted hook or before mount, you can you can add an event listener to the window for the before unload event. And on the before unload event, there's like some function that you can run. There's like a there's like a certain function signature, and you can say, "Cool, like you know, check with the user basically." And that function inside of that function, you can say, "Well, prevent default if you want to stop them from reloading or mounting," and then whatever, we'll have, you know, I'll have the code in, in a link. But then you can basically have like some sort of logical Boolean state on your component that says, you know, this person is editing or this person is not editing. So then if the person is filling out a form, like as soon as they start typing something, you can change the is editing, is editing flag to true. And then on that before unload event, uh, you can say, hey, if this person is still editing, actually run the logic to try and check with them to make sure that they are okay with like leaving the form pre-filled out. And then when, the, when, you know, when they're complete with the form, you obviously want to change that is editing to false again so that 
so they you they don't um, if they close the browser. So and awesome. naturally, like anytime you add your own event listener, well, when you have event listeners in view, like the at click or at input or whatever, view will clean up those event listeners for you. But anytime you're in some sort of lifecycle hook or anytime you're inside of a component, some sort of function, and you're manually creating your own event listeners, you want to clean up those events as well when the component unmounts. So you can do that easily by saying, you know, right next to like window.addEventListener before unload, and then you attach it to some function. Maybe it's like prevent nav. Then you also want to say view has the this dot dollar sign once, which is a function that runs once, or which is a function that runs once on at a given hook. Uh, you can tie into the before destroy hook, and then you can say window.remove event listener before unload, and then the prevent nav function. What were you going to say, Steve? So yeah, I did something really similar to this. I didn't use the before and load. That probably would have been a good thing to do. But I did something very similar where, you know, I've got a very form-centric application with lots of information being entered. And in some of these pages, there could be a lot of data. And so you want to warn them, say, hey, you sure you want to do this before you leave? And so I did something similar in that I created a state variable that says, you know, is editing, or I think I called it is unsaved or has unsaved is what I called it, actually. And but then I had to add checks, you know, in various different places instead of on the before and load. So that probably would have been the one thing that was more efficient. What I'm curious is how you detected changes. How did you know that you had unsaved? Because that was one thing I really looked around for a while. And what I ended up doing was a watcher that used a handler. So you can you can, in your watch object, you can set deep equals true and then have a handler. And then you could do your checking in there and, and set your variable as needed. In my case, I was using an object. It was a JavaScript object with a member for each of the fields in the form. And so using V, you know, then I would use the model on the object, tie it to the form fields. And so it would just look for any differences in the object. And it, it worked pretty well because I could, you know, then just pop up an alert. I would pop up a modal that says, hey, we've got uh, changes here. You're about to leave this. Are you sure you want to do it? If you click cancel, then it just shuts down the modal and stays. Otherwise, it, you know, continues on in its route generation. So, yeah, you, you bring up an interesting point, which is that, well, I'll, I'll talk about that after. But regarding, like, how do you determine or how do you trigger, like, knowing when the changes have occurred? So it's, it's kind of hard to say, right? I mean, it's going to be, I'd say, on a case-by-case scenario because if you have like a file upload, for example, that's not going to be a traditional form input event. You also could say, well, what if the, you know, you could listen to a, for every, you could attach an event listener for every input within a form and say, hey, as soon as the user types on any of those inputs, then we'll consider the state that they have made an edit, Right. But then you could say, well, a user, a user could like completely fill out an, an empty input field with their name, and then they could remove it. And then technically, they haven't made an edit, but you've already triggered the input event, right? So maybe you listen to a change event or, or some sort of, you know, the logic for, for how you actually determine if the user has made an edit, I think would be on a case-by-case scenario, depending on the, the UI. Right. I think the benefit to your model is that 
you have a centralized place for doing the checking. In my particular case, I had forms within tabs within you know larger workspaces. And so I had a few different places where I had to go out and, and basically listen for the events, depending on what the user was clicking on to get away from the current page. But yeah, I like uh, what you're using there because it's a little more centralized. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like present this in this blog post as a as a mix-in, but actually this would work really well at, on a global store level. Like you could have an action or a mutation that just toggles if the user is editing. And then anytime, like just have like a, the global event listener for the window the, before unload. So the point that you made though that I wanted to touch on that um, I haven't covered yet is that the event listener for before unload is a, works when the user tries to reload the page, reload the browser, or when they try to close the browser tab, right? And that doesn't account for the scenario that you talked about, which is if the user navigates to a different page within that single page application. Because technically, you know, we got to remember that this is all just a JavaScript application. The browser isn't actually leaving or going to a different page or reloading or like changing, you know, it's not, it's not going to a, a different route from a server perspective. That makes sense. So if I wanted to prevent the user from going to a different route in my application, I can't rely on the before unload event. And so I have to, I can tie into the um, before route leave event that the view router gives us. And then we can do the same sort of logic and say, hey, if the user um, is editing, then you can either have your own modal dialogue. One thing that I do is I actually use the window.confirm method to do a pop-up. And the reason I do that is because that uses, that keeps a little bit more of a consistent experience between the before unload is going to pop up the, the browser's native like alert box, which is ugly, but you, you don't have an option to style that. So I use the window.confirm to have like the same experience instead of having you know, my own dialogue for before route leave and then the browser's sort of alert box for before unload. That makes sense. Yes, I think. Yeah, I mean, you can take a look at the blog post too. It, it um, explains it pretty clearly. But essentially, you know, you kind of want to have a check on whether you should be or should not be guarding against that navigation, and then you can listen to the before unload event in the browser. And if you do that, you want to make sure you clean it up, and then you can listen to the before route leave hook for view router. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Cool. That's all I got. Yeah, I think we've covered all our tips, right, Lindsay? Yeah, that was it. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> if you have any tips that you'd like to share with us so that we can share with the rest of the community, feel free to reach out to us. We'll give our Twitter usernames at the end of the show. Hope you enjoyed listening to all of this. Are you freelancing or moonlining? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. At this point, we'll move on to our picks. Picks are the things that we like, don't have to be programming related, that we'd like to share with the community. So we'll just go off with that. Steve, would you like to share a pick with us? Yes, I would. I actually have two picks today going to crazy. So first one is just this funny little thing I saw on Twitter and we were 
chatting about it a little bit before the show. It's called 98.css. And it's a CSS library that allows you to create or to theme items exactly like Windows 98 boxes. They've got buttons and checkboxes and options buttons and group boxes and a various list of things. My first, my response on Twitter when I saw this was, I have one question, why? But apparently there are people that want to be able to do this, maybe out of nostalgia. So anyway, I'll drop the link in the show notes, but it looks quite entertaining. Second is something that isn't out yet, but will be this year. Um, I did a little of my classic Bill and Ted's imitation earlier in the show, you know, with the excellent dudes. There actually is a movie coming out this year called Bill and Ted Face the Music. And I'll put a link to the announcement that they did on YouTube. But uh, I think his name was Alex Winter. And then that great thespian Keanu Reeves reprising their roles. So hopefully this will be indeed a most excellent movie. But as of now, that remains to be seen. Most excellent. Thank you. I will admit on the 98 CSS, my first thought was, well, if you get rid of all the Chrome on an Electron application, you could build a Windows 95 tool now. Or Windows 98 tool now. So that was that was my first thought. But yes, why? Austin, what are your picks today? Yeah, I got some picks. Got some picks, yo. My first pick is non-tech related. And I will say that I have been trying to like I'm not I'm not full on vegetarian, but I try to avoid eating meat as much as possible. And something that makes my life and my food so much better is Trader Joe's Mushroom and Company Multi-Purpose Umami Seasoning Blend. You taste it and you're like, umami. It's amazing. We'll throw a link in. It's awesome. Whether you're vegetarian or not, it's delicious. And I absolutely love it. I put it, put it on everything. What does Cereal. it taste like? So it's umami. It's uh, like... okay. <laughs> there you go. So umami was like new sort of flavor sense that was discovered, I think in Japan. But you know, like the tongue, we can taste like sweet, sour, bitter, salty. I think there's five different, there was five different flavors. And then like some, someone discovered this flavor, umami. Umami is basically like uh, when people say something is, what is it? Savory. So like it, it's a it's kind of like like steak is has umami flavor. I don't know how better to describe it. Okay, Just yeah, go, it's hard. Go. It's hard to describe a flavor. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> describing code on a podcast. Yeah, um, yeah. No, but it's it's delicious. I would highly recommend everyone go out and get some and just put it on everything. It's amazing. Uh, and then my second pick is going to be tech related. I'm working on a, a new product that I'm really excited about, and I am hosting it. Oh, I'm hosting the API on begin.com. I'm giving that a shot. And it's really cool. It's like a serverless. Let me, let me actually pull it up. It is... So their, their tagline is modern apps built fast AF. Begin is a ridiculously quick platform for building modern web apps, sites, and APIs. And I got to say, one, like it's cool. It's all serverless. And... They basically like can host a lot of your stuff for free. It's all it's all running on AWS Lambda, but it makes it really easy to get going. 
They also have some database hosting that they provide for you, which is nice. They do all of your, like they'll do different deploys based on your Git commits. So you can have like a new commit that goes, you know, from testing to staging to production, just at a click of a button. It's a nice dashboard. So it has a lot of, a lot of stuff built in for you that you can use and get, get a, an app up and running really nicely. I think uh, it's a relatively new project. There's a lot that is missing in the docs still, but the, the, the folks that are running it are really responsive to whenever I reach out and I've been able to get really far and I like it. Yeah. So you can you host like standard like a Next app where you're using Node on the back end? Yeah, yeah. So they, like a, they, anything you can do with Netlify type thing or what's the I guess other than they say it's fast, what are the benefits? Yeah, that's kind of a difference. So Netlify, although Netlify does have its serverless functions, I don't think I don't think Netlify is really designed for like running a node application. No, it specifically um, isn't. They're designed for Jamstack. I'm just trying to understand the breadth breadth of things that begin can support what kind of applications yeah i mean anything that you can anything that you can run serverless which i realize doesn't really answer the question but to give you an example like i have my application is like a currently it's a single page application that makes api requests and i have my single page application hosted on netlify because they're awesome and great for static stuff but if i wanted to if i wanted to move to nuxt for example and not do a static site I would need to have some sort of server running that next process. So begin, I use begin for handling API requests, but you could have it taking any of your requests and like responding with a Nuxt application. Yeah, um, that's cool. Yeah, I'm looking, they've got a number of uh, sample beginner apps, like they got Vue, Create React apps, Svelte, Apollo, Straight. Yeah, it looks like uh, they got a, quite a, a list of sample apps. So that's a, that's a good starter at least. Yeah, it's. Re- I mean, it's totally, totally awesome for small apps and prototypes. I know for sure because all of their function they don't have a limit to the number of function calls you can make. I think, and they have they'll provide you with like a free database. I don't know if that's unbounded, but they're really generous with like what they give for free. And then when you need to, you can scale up. And yeah, I consider it a lot of options, but I'm giving this a shot, and so far, I'm really happy with it. Yeah, this looks really neat. I could really see how this could be useful to dig into this some more. Yeah, I'm going to have to look at this too. Thank you, Austin. So my pick today, I just have one. That is a video that I watched yesterday, Six Awesome Chrome Extensions for GitHub by Scott Talinsky at Level Up Tutorials. It is a quick six-minute video where he goes over some extensions, which is based on another video of how to IDEify GitHub. The idea being just make it a little more flexible and usable. The one that I liked the most out of all of this was an extension for Chrome called Octotree that then gives you access as if you were in like VS Code or something to go down the tree of your the, the GitHub repo that you're looking at and access files directly. So it's always really frustrating to me when you're on GitHub and you have to click on source, then you click on components, then you click on the next thing. And it, every single time it's doing a full page load because that's how GitHub works. But with this extension, it just puts it on the side just like as if you were in VS Code, and you can just open up folders in a tree view. So it's, oh, it's an excellent extension. I like that. I like that. Yeah, so that, that extension is Octotree. I guess I have two picks. The extension is Octotree. The video that I learned about it in is six awesome Chrome extensions for GitHub. Uh, there's another one that gives it a dark mode. There's another that lets you download files directly. There's another that links files together. So if you open up one file, 
you can just like if you have an import statement, you can click on the import statement to go to that other file. So stuff like that. It's really oh, cool. Oh, that's cool. I used to do that when I was working with PHP. I would do that in PHP Storm all the time where you could just command click on a method and it would take you right to the definition. So nice. Mm-hmm. So those are my two picks. And that is it for today. If you'd like to reach out to us, talk about what you've uh, been hearing as far as tips, tricks, and picks, you can find us on Twitter. I am at Yagabush. Steve is at Wonder95. Austin is at Stegosource. Uh, otherwise, you can reach out to us at Views on View or uh, at devchat.tv. If you want to listen to any of our other episodes, they're all available there for you. Hope you enjoyed this episode this week. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Adios. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. 